Hi, I'm Brian Koppelman. And I'm David Levine. And we wrote and directed Knockaround Guys. This is our first movie as directors. Um, starts in 1987. And uh, with the song and the look, we wanted to create a period feel. But beyond that, we wanted to really show this is the kind of a mob movie that you're that you're comfortable with. We've got, you know, we're under the L in Brooklyn. We got steam coming up, rain slick streets, a badass car, the Monte Carlo SS. We wanted to lock into the imagery that was iconic. That was iconic, yeah. And uh, from there, we then wanted to to twist the thing and show a story about the mafia that that you haven't seen before. Yeah, we wanted you to feel comfortable and then pull the rug out a little bit. I guess that begins when you see this kid in the back seat, because that's sort of an anomaly. The beginning of a mob movie. And just to have John Malkovich, uh, New York tough guy Arthur Nascarella, in, in your opening shot, uh, in your first film as a director, feels great. And here they are arriving at the back door of the empty parking lot of uh, a restaurant that, for us, was modeled on uh, Don Pepe's Vesuvio's restaurant in Ozone Park. When we were kids, um, sometimes on Sunday nights, uh, we'd get to go there. Uh, my family used to go to this restaurant, and we would see some people entering from right here, from the back, and going through the kitchen, and going through the tables. And um, you always knew that those guys were connected guys. Andrew Francis, who plays the young Maddie, has remarkable presence for uh, such a young man and really acquitted himself uh, more than admirably here. And we like where this scene got set up here. He's sort of like boxed in underneath that ladder staircase and there's some steam in the background. The lights falling through in bars really tried to create an image of him almost being trapped right from the beginning. And our cinematographer, Tom Richmond, and our production designer really came through in that moment. The, the marriage of those two things really works well. So continuing along with uh, the idea that there's something kind of familiar about this mob movie that you're looking at, we wanted to cast a presence who really identified strongly with that. This is uh, Mike Starr. He's the actor who played Frenchie in uh, Goodfellas. Because we, we, wanna, we really want to suck you into this idea that, oh, yeah, yeah, this is, this is the mafia. This is the, the mob that I know where code and honor and loyalty come into play and where there are rules. Um, because we don't believe that that mafia exists anymore. But we wanted to set the thing up at the beginning in a way that, that everybody thinks it's that, and everyone wants to still believe that that world exists. People are, for some reason, comforted to know that the wise guys are out there, but that they're, they're noble criminals. Remember the time I got you that bundle of hustlers, huh? You made our fucking fortune to those kids at Aquinas Prep. Oh, it wasn't me, I swear. I didn't know an informant. 
Shut the fuck up! New Line thought that if we cut the tongue scene, it would be a movie that would play to more women, I think. In a broader audience. The only time anyone walked out of a screening during the movie, it was when the tongue got cut. And maybe like one older woman walked out in one, in two screenings. And then they also ask audiences to rate their least favorite scene. And, you know, there's always one scene has to be an audience's least favorite. And so in this, it's the guy getting his tongue out. If we cut that, then there would be something else that people objected to. It's just, it's a pointless process in a way. If it's necessary to set the tone, you gotta leave it in. You know, this scene is not supposed to be easy to watch. The idea is that it's a horrible situation for this kid. So if you and the audience are averting your eyes, that's, it's good. You can feel what the kid's going through, hopefully. Okay, go on outside. Now, What's coming up here is uh, Teddy Deserve uh, throws a dime to Maddie, as if to say, go make a phone call. I mean, he says that and throws him a dime. And in the screenplay, uh, Maddie earns a nickname from this. He ends up being called Maddie Dimes a couple of different points during the film. And it's a sign of his failure and really inability to be a man in terms of the mob. It's sort of a nickname that he's stuck with that haunts him. But we weren't able to um, incorporate it in the end in the film. It felt heavy-handed. We never quite got this right. Um, the timing of his head going back, the gunshot, and even when we could place the gunshot in all different places, it, it just never was quite nailed the way it exists in our imaginations. Now we pick up Maddie, 12, 13 years later in a really different place. He's uh, seen across from Josh Mostel, a great New York character actor who's playing Mac McCreedle, a sports agent. We uh, had occasion to meet Josh on Rounders. He did some great stuff, and we knew that we wanted to work with him when we directed a film. Ever since, um, I guess, Wall Street, when he plays uh, Ollie and gets those uh, half a million shares in the bank, we thought it would be fun to work with him. One of Gecko's gang. Yeah, he's one of Gecko's gang. Plus, uh, I thought it would be a money-making opportunity to cast Josh in this film because uh, during the shooting of Rounders, I won $600 playing Hold'em against him. Uh, I guess that's the difference between writing a movie and directing it. Uh, I didn't have time to play cards with him on this one. Remember, Dave, we, we kept telling Josh, be more obnoxious. Yeah, especially in the off-camera stuff. Instead of being helpful and generous to the other actor, we actually asked Josh to make uh, the scene as hard as possible for Barry so that he would feel as uncomfortable as his character would in the job interview. Huh. White's well, taxi and livery, also president. John Doe's catering hall. Um, that's, uh, Benny Chain's place, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, he, he owns it. Hmm. So are you, like, related to him? 
Uh, yes, I am. Uh, he's my father. Well, that's a pretty close relation. Well, you got enthusiasm, but there's nothing in your job experience for me Listen, to go. I know, um, no, I'm glad that you came. You know, in. I, I know what you're thinking. Sorry, because I've heard it before. It's always the same story for me. I get cold cocked. And this scene was very tough. We we shot the movie um, mostly in Canada, and I think that we pull it off largely. You believe you're in New York. This scene because of the shades, because right outside of him, uh, you really can see landmarks. In that, that indicate Toronto. It was very tricky. Uh, Josh gets up and crosses at, at one point, and we followed him. And we had to really cut around that because it was very clear that it was, it was Canada. You know how many guys like you and your father tried to break off a piece? I'm going to tell you what he told them. Go whistle. All respect, but you've got me wrong. Do I? I'm here for a job, all right? Just a fucking job. 1010 10 wins news. In what prosecutors are calling a death knell for organized crime, indictments have been handed down across the board. The government's case is only the latest blow to the weakening power structure of... This is down at Seaside Courts in Coney Island, which is sort of the center of the handball world. There's a wall back there painted with the Italian flag. We actually saw that when a good friend of ours had taken us on his rounds collecting from from Bodega, something we see later in the film. And uh, he took us up to Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. We saw a wall just like that, so we recreated it down here in Coney Island. Too good. The man is too fucking good. Right. That's why he is the boss. <laughs> Towel. Bring in the next actor. You know why your dad's so hot? Here we've got uh, Barry Pepper's character bringing a delivery of uh, money that he collected for his father. And in the dialogue of the scene, we, uh, we see that even though these guys are powerful and Hopper's character, Benny Chains, is a mob boss, things aren't so great as they, as they usually seem in movies. Money's not so easy. Yeah, Don Corleone in The Godfather uh, doesn't seem like he, although he's deeply worried about his family, um, his issues are giant, they're global. These guys worry day to day about how they're gonna survive and keep their lifestyle going. And in real life, that's how it is. And that's something that we wanted to show, that these people are pressed, that the money's not so easy. It's the first time we see Maddie with his father. Kind of a strained dynamic. When we went to cast um, Benny Chains, we, we needed to obviously create some sort of believable familial resemblance between he and Barry Pepper, and we think that they do look oddly like father and son, something about the profile and just the way they are. But uh, we had Malkovich playing this guy's underboss, and when you think about sort of the authority that actors in Hollywood bring, very few people can step in and bring the authority where it's believable that they're Malkovich's boss. You almost need somebody iconic to play the role. And we thought that Hopper, because of his past work and just his presence in general and, and his abilities, brought a believable authority that he would be in charge of this other guy who's so formidable. And my dad had played in some golf outing and met Hopper on the course. And I guess said something like, uh, my uh, son is in the film business uh, as you are, Mr. Hopper. And, uh, 
And my dad came back and said, you know, uh, I met Dennis Hopper. Should you ever want to cast him in a film? I imagine I could uh, uh, get him a script. So Dave and I chuckled about that. And, uh, and then we wanted to cast Dennis Hopper. So I said to my dad, you really think you can get him a script? He goes, yeah. And then, I don't know, two days later, we got a call. It's Dennis Hopper. I loved your screenplay. And then he said he'd do the movie. What else can you do? <sighs> Listen, I'll see you later. And here, Maddie goes, um, after this really frustrating exchange, to try to, you know, brighten up his day a little by going to see his friend. People ask us why um, there isn't a love interest in this movie. And one reason goes back to veracity, which is these guys are leaving New York. And in New York, um, we actually wrote and shot a scene where you see that Barry has a girl in New York. But it was a, a very short scene, and it didn't. Um, it didn't really work in the film. And then, you know, if it were a movie starring, like, John Bon Jovi or something, he'd go to the small town, and Asia Argento would be there, and they would have this two-day love affair. We just couldn't justify it in the movie. We just felt like it, the movie wasn't about that and couldn't afford the side trip. Why is it every junkie thinks newspaper queens glass? Couldn't tell you. Big props to Lester Cohn our production designer, who asked that question uh, one day when we were in the van, and Dave and I looked at each other and said, well, that's going in the film. Come on, what's the matter with you? Huh? You guys got the worst job in the world. Nah, worst job has got to be mop boy at Show World. <laughs> that's an homage to Show World, the adult entertainment complex that used to be in New York on 42nd Street. Not that we've ever been there. It was closed during the mayoralities of some very puritanical politicians. You got that right. Man had crews running. Well, he sat there at the Bergen, sipping his espresso and counting money. Yeah, but he had to get out, you know that. Another conviction, he'd be gone for life, right? Yeah, but he's still named Scarpa, and where does that leave me? With a small piece of a restaurant and all the hassles of his old life. Bad press, Fed surveillance, Liquor board shakedowns. Not to mention people whispering when we walk into a room. I mean, face it, Chris. You know, the regular people, we're stone fucking goombas. You know, but to knock around guys to our fathers. Knock around guys is a term we heard when we were out with some, some real uh, serious type of guys. And one of them used the term. It's pretty uh, exchangeable with the term good fellas or made man. Or wise guy. Yeah. Now, we ask you to believe a lot of things in this scene. We ask you to believe that Seth Green is a pilot, that, um, that it's not raining out, that it's just as bright a day as the day you just came from. Sign me up. Fly over the world, work in a stewardess rich environment. You know that really Seth's hair is really that color. I'm serious, man. Would you talk to him for me? Tell him it's been a year since anything's been up my nose. <laughs> okay, ten months, but I'm ready. I'm locked down. You ready to go or what? Yeah, where's Taylor? 
originally when we shot this, we thought that we would use a single point of view of a van going down several blocks, but the assistant editor, Dan Padgett, actually took the footage and made these jump cuts along with this cue, so we thought it worked so well, we kept it that way. And here's Vin Diesel, who was really uh, the only possible choice to play Taylor. And we cast Vin before Fast and the Furious, before Triple uh, X. Basically, after meeting him, uh, we realized he seemed like the only guy in town who you would really believe could do the things uh, that he does. There's a little tip to uh, Taylor's character's background. He, uh, his mother's Jewish, and so he's a Jew, and because of that, will never be able to get made in the traditional Sicilian mob. He, you can see under his shirt uh, the Star of David tattoo on his arm, which is a real contradiction for a Jewish character. Jews, uh, if they have a tattoo, can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. And this character is so proud of his heritage that he actually defiles his body and tattoos it on his arm. It's very self-defeating. And actually, Vin brought that idea to us. One friend of ours um, is really the model for the Taylor Reese character. He does the same thing for a living that Taylor does, and he's been in many of the same situations uh, that Taylor finds himself in in the movie, and he said many of the things that Taylor says. Now, this guy, Silvio, uh, who plays the shop owner, he had a hell of a day. This day was about 14 hours or 15 hours long. And after getting jerked over this counter again and again and again, um, and you have to understand that stuntmen get paid at a different rate than actors. And if you're an actor and you do a stunt, you get paid more. And he was a Canadian day player, great guy. But after this happening all day long, he finally exploded. And he turned to us and he said, listen to me. And, you know, he's Canadian and doesn't talk like this, but he was in care. He goes, listen to me. This was a stunt from the beginning, and I should get paid as a stunt. Uh, and we calmed him down and got him to finish the day. Look at him. Teddy deserves I guess kiss more than a mezzanine. <laughs> when we went about casting um, Maddie, we knew that we wanted somebody who had a real strength and had sort of like a real New York um, exterior, sort of like a shell of toughness, but had real vulnerability. So it required a very good actor to do all these different things. And, you know, we saw tons of people. But we'd seen Barry in Saving Private Ryan, and he had such a distinct and interesting screen presence. It just, it really stuck with us, and we were able to meet with him, and we were a little bit nervous originally, like, wow, can this guy do the New York thing because he's from Western Canada, and he's so not like this character um, in many ways. And he came in, and he had figured out sort of like a, sort of a Brooklyn neutral accent, and he just sort of blew us away. We thought, this is the guy. He had a great way of showing you how strong he was on the outside, but that he was like all busted up on the inside at the same time. And, and we thought that's exactly what was called for, for the role. We love John in this scene. 
and we love John in general, um, having met him on Rounders and worked closely with him, when we wrote this part, uh, we really had him in mind. And we sent it to him uh, in France where he lives, the script, and he called us back and said, uh, I'd love to be in the movie, guys. I'd love to do it. And once he said yes, it was clear we'd be able to make the movie. This is a shot of New York City, and on uh, this movie we did, uh, I guess, six total days in New York and 40 days in Canada. And so the exterior here is in New York, in Brooklyn. It's a catering hall in Brooklyn. And right on the cut when, uh, when Barry walks inside, we're shooting an interior in Toronto. Here's the Steadicam shot of sterno cans. It's sort of compulsory to do a Steadicam shot in the movie, but we think that we're the first to shoot sterno cans with a Steadicam. And there's Lawrence Bender tickling the ivories. He was the producer, and uh, he was awesome, so supportive throughout the shoot. That's our production designer, Lester Cohn, carrying the cakes. We, we wanted to get together and put on a show here, so everybody got involved. <laughs> that was the idea. This right here is Barry Pepper's brother, Doug. Uh, maybe the most fake moment in the movie, that guy working in a kitchen. He's uh, much more comfortable tracking bear or caribou. We knew we were going to have a basement filled with with swag and various wise guys hanging around. When we went to look at the location, there was actually a craps table up and running. And we thought that that worked great. Yeah, and the guy who ran the hall is actually the stick man in that scene and was very comfortable with a, with a stick, with a crap stick. You need this money picked up from Yorkers in Spokane? I'm your guy. The answer is no. You get detected crossing state lines with all that lumber. Dennis offers costume here. We went with the uh, members-only jacket. Seemed a lot more real than uh, a fancy suit. Beth Pasternak, our costume designer, uh, we went on a field trip with her to Brooklyn, and we got a lot of great looks, and she did a great job. Marbles? He's half an idiot, and that is the good half. Come on, he's in, he's out. Pop, listen to me, would you? All right, I swear. Tom Richmond, uh, our cinematographer, did a fantastic job uh, in Penny Chain's office because we wanted it, again, to feel like the old world mafia, like this guy's hanging on. A guy gets something done because he needs to. Now, maybe it's my doing. The way I raised you... And we need to point out a couple of things in this scene. Right there, Bruno San Martino and Paul Anka are on the wall uh, behind Paul Anka because he's basically the last living great saloon singer. And Bruno San Martino because uh, of a lifelong obsession. An iconic grappler, and the man was nice enough to send us autographed pictures, one autographed to Dennis Hopper's character, which is great, Benny and Chains. The other hanging in my living room at home. We need to fly to Spokane, Feltz Field. There'll be a guy there named Georgie Yarkis. He'll hand you a bag. Now don't look in the bag, don't open... The name Georgie Yarkis uh, is a slight variant on... Uh, a golf hustler that we know. And don't fuck this up. Benny Chain said to tell you, don't fuck this up. I know. Only stop for gas. Don't worry. I keep her on the barber pole the whole way back. Now, Seth didn't have a hard time pulling off this, any of this scene. This was in the old wheelhouse, it seemed. Didn't it, Dave? Yeah. 
So you'll notice a grimace on his face when he just took that sip of Coke. In between takes, somebody put out a cigarette in that can of Coke, but he didn't break character. He played through. Much like the great Bruno San Martino might if someone ac accidentally actually broke a bottle on his head. Or brought any kind of foreign object into the ring. Don't fly under the influence. We don't advocate it at all. Now this song, Living With The Law, by Chris Whitley, I think was on our minds uh, when we were writing the script. Yeah. Chris Whitley's got a really distinctive sound that seems to go with the open spaces out in Montana. And it's a real contrast to the music that we heard in New York. This, if you're sort of a miscreant from New York with drugs in your possession, sure. these guys are the last guys you want to run into when you, you make a stopover. Yeah. Okay, these are two Canadian actors that ran a scam on us as far as getting their part. Dove Tiefenbach, the kid on the right, we knew we wanted him because he had such an interesting quality to him. We were seeing a lot of kids for the other part. Sheriff Weaver's son. And uh, these guys somehow found each other, became friends, got together, and rehearsed before auditioning together so that they'd be better than everybody else. And then Dove t made sure that whoever he was reading with, he, Dove tanked in all the other auditions, and then he was great with Chris. Uh, in the end, we're happy that they're in the film. They really play these characters well. And they deserved it after that. We wanted to kill them many, many days on the show. Yeah. Especially Dove, Dove is a real interesting kid. He pushed our, uh, our AD, Andrew Shea, past the brink many times. In fact, in a scene coming up when he's wearing his uh, street luge outfit, <laughs> and we'd been holding traffic on a road, and some just nice local folks started driving by. He thought it was a perfect time to thrust his pelvis at their car, causing Andy Shea, one of the most peace-loving men I've ever met, to yoke him, just pull him right by the neck out of the way. Yeah, they got so into playing the, these two obnoxious losers that uh, they, they became them. And we love the guys, but they almost didn't make it through any number of shooting days. We played the scene straight through um, instead of a freeze frame and then cutting to going to white and finding him on the phone with Maddie, voicing over what happens. Uh, in the script, it just played straight. Um, but there was a line of description in the script that said, the sheriff and deputy looked right through him as if they knew every single thing he'd ever been guilty of. It was like they knew every single thing I'd ever been guilty of. Here, we use it in voiceover because it was the only way to make the scene work, to make you understand why he dropped the bag. 
And when we first shot it, we shot it in a linear way, and we first cut it together that way during shooting, and we realized it didn't work. You didn't buy it. And then we had the idea to use voiceover and, and use the time flip, and it really seems to sell it and set up the rest of the film. Here's, here's the first of many interesting frames that Tom Richmond had to deal with, trying to get six foot seven Tom Noonan in the same frame with uh, five foot plus Seth Green. Here's a great Tom Noonan moment. That sniff. We wanted uh, Marvel's character, Marvel's to uh, flash a big wad of money, bigger than, than most people have seen in that town. And that one looked like it was about two inches thick with hundreds, which I think gets the point across. Don't be ridiculous, sir. Let me open my strong box here. This is an improv moment here. No, it's going to take too long. Why in such a rush? Noonan is such a scary guy if you don't know him. And this was his first day on the film, and Seth didn't really know him and knew him from the scary roles he'd played. And you could just feel that Seth was genuinely nervous in his presence. And uh, so we said to Tom, just say something to him. Fuck him up. And uh, it just really added tension to the scene. I have your change. No, really, it's okay. And Tom came up with a whole uh, psychodrama here, which was he was about to ask Louise. Well, this is all in his mind, and this is his character's motivation. Yeah. None of this is in the film, but it's great. It's a great uh, window into the mind of this great actor. He, uh, he, he was about to ask Louise to the a dance. The ticket girl. The ticket girl. And since Noonan's wife, the character, his character's wife, had died years back, he'd never asked anyone out. And he was just about to ask her out. And then this New York weasel comes walking in, ruining everything. And he hates him for it. He doesn't even like Louise anymore because now that he's spoken to her, she's spoiled. In researching this film, um, we went to Montana and drove around for uh, about a week. We flew into Billings. And in the Billings airport, they have that sign and they have that Indian. And here's a moment that everybody's felt, looking up that luggage chute, and your bag hasn't arrived. But uh, this is it to about the 10th Listen. hour. Who the fuck has the money, Marbles? Maddie, I have no idea. I saw Edgar Winter in concert in 1977 at the age of 11, and uh, always wanted to put this song in a movie. Real continuity buffs like to point out this little moment that in a matter of hours, these kids in the middle of nowhere have gotten top-of-the-line street luges, helmets, and custom leathers. But uh, in the world of the internet, you just have to go with it. Oh, bacon, dude. That was sick. <laughs> All right, where the hell are you? Weibo, Montana. Weibo, Montana is a real place. And on, on this research trip, and then when we went driving, uh, it was incredible. It was exactly what you would hope that, that it would be. It was um, small. It was uh, a place where they were very, uh, they were very insular. And um, where an outsider would be noticed immediately. 
This is a, a, a really great moment for me when these guys step off the plane, dressed the way they are in the middle of what would be a wheat field if there was even a wheat field there. And Tai Chi has always seemed very funny to us because it's not really a method of self-defense and it's not really dancing. It's somewhere to the wimpier side of Tai Bo. And we thought that Marbles uh, might have just read a book on Tai Chi or something. Shut up. All right, I go on the line for you. I give you a shot for what? Jeez, Maddie, I told you. There were cops. Felt like a setup. Can I tell Although you? this is not in any way a movie about movies, the movies that we grew up really loving were gangster films and westerns. Um, the Magnificent Seven was a huge touchstone uh, picture for both of us, um, as obviously The Godfather was. And the idea of the American West and as, as a place that used to be um, a place that you could escape to, a place that you could disappear in, uh, that's been shut down. And so uh, in the same way that the life of the young gangster has been, particularly the young Italian gangster. And so for us, it was a really, um, to sort of fuse them uh, was really interesting. And, and, and by making this movie a Western too, seemed a fresh way to evaluate these young wannabe gangsters. Yeah. We'd grown up around these guys and we were fascinated with them and we wanted to do a gangster movie. But we kept running into this wall, which was, you know, we've seen these guys running around the neighborhood and going to the social clubs, and that kind of movie seemed really stale to us. And when we got the idea that we could put them in a small town where nobody knew who they were, it seemed to really open it up, and that's where the Western element came in. Can you tell me who I could rent a car from? You're talking to her. <laughs> this movie was shot in 235, and... For the first time, you can really see the, the panorama there. It's a real widescreen. The Jeep is tiny. These guys are lost in this just sea of prairie. And uh, we'd had conversations with Tom Richmond and the production designer, Lester Cohn, about how we wanted everything to look cramped and, and the frames to be cut off in the New York portion of the film. And now that these guys are out here in the great wide open, we want to feel just how much space there is and how on their own they are. In fact, that's how Lester got the job. We'd sort of talked about that a lot, and we would say to production designers, how do you see it? And Lester walked in and he went, well, uh, I think uh, in New York uh, we should put a lot of stuff in the sides of the frames, and then uh, in Montana we should leave it wide open. want to find us. Make them beg us to take that money back. They're so scared. Now, a friend of ours, basically, we asked a friend of ours who's uh, a guy who'd know, how would you go about controlling a town? If you were new and there was no sort of mob influence. How would you announce yourself? Like this. We find the toughest guy here. I mean the worst guy they got. The guy all the other guys cross the street to avoid. And we glaze this tough guy. Give him the beating of his life. Way past the worst he's ever given. We should have panned here, and instead we cut. That's okay, though, because Vin Diesel is a guy who knows how to hold the camera on a short zoom. We used a lot of zooms in the movie, and uh, 
These days, for some reason, that's a little out of fashion. It's a little bit of a throwback to 70s filmmaking, but uh, we dug it. How you doing? Fine. Listen, there are so many things I'd like to say about this scene, but I guess we should leave it at the fact that these day players were very generous actors. Yeah, what's your name? Bernadette. Bernadette. You just tell me where I could find a little trouble in this town. Used to be you would have already found it. But, uh, since I'm taken, you could always try the shamrock tonight. We really love that low angle shot behind the guys at the shamrock bar. Really seems like something out of an old western to us. Glenn Ford type movie. Fucking homecoming up here. Are you kidding me? They got action here, man. Illegal fucking. To uh, the Shamrock Bar in Weibo. Uh, we raise a glass to you, folks. Thanks for letting us model this place after you. And uh, you treated us much better when we were there than these guys get treated here in the film. No, we're good. Very good. Seth Green checking out the waitress's butt there. Um, really in character, deeply in character. This was an 18 and a half hour day, and this was the last thing we shot. This actor does something really interesting for us. <laughs> this is the most phony moment in the film. Barry pays the guy and says, keep it, meaning here's a tip for you. Nothing in the till. Hey, Gordy. This is one of the great voice performances of our day. I am the animatronic cowboy's voice. You see anybody in here with an unusually thick robe? Nah, I've been watching. Now, the actor Andy Davoli uh, was very, very comfortable in this role. Uh, although he's a much better guy than the character, he is every bit as smooth as the character. How are you, dear? People really dance to this? Sure. In writing the script, this scene was the one it was always building to for us. The speech that Vinny says and the things that happen here were in our minds from the very beginning. We knew we needed Vin's character to give a horrible beating to the town tough guy. And uh, we needed a way to justify it so you wouldn't lose sympathy for the New York characters. And everybody knows in movie justice that if a bad guy slaps a woman, he deserves whatever he's got coming to him. And uh, let's just take a moment to talk about Kevin Gage. I mean, this guy is one of the best character actors alive. His performance as Wayne Grow in Heat is one of the definitive bad guy performances of all time. And when we were trying to cast this role, which is a small role, but a crucial one, because it has to be someone you believe will stand up to Vin Diesel and will incite him and 
Uh, and it has to seem fair when Vinny beats him up. And it was very tough to find a guy who could do it. We auditioned huge bouncers, and they all had this scared look in their eyes, or they couldn't act at all. And one day we were riding in the van, and we kept talking about a Wayne Grow type of guy. God, we, we need someone like Wayne Grow. And then Dave turns to me and goes, why don't we just get Wayne Grow? And I said, you think he'll do it? And he said, well, let's send it to him. We sent Kevin Gage the script, and he called us, and he said, all right, guys, I'll do it. And he said, uh, I notice a character uh, chews tobacco. And we said, yeah, and he goes, I've never chewed myself, but when I come up there, I'll have it for you. And sure enough, he came and uh, chews and spits tobacco like a champ. A little more movie justice also. If you spit tobacco on a guy's leg, that beating is even more deserved. Oh, yeah, you're going to take a beating. On the way you stop thinking about being tough and all that. It starts and we do know a guy, this, the guy that Taylor is in, in real life, when he was 12 years old or 11 years old, decided that he was going to become a tough guy. He had a very hard life. He knew this was where he was going. And he decided to have 500 fights because he figured if he had 500 fights, he'd be a tough guy at the end of it. I got no problem with you, all right? I'll tell and we you put it in the film. A lot of things on the way to 500. None more important. Uh, in the script, this song was going to be Margaritaville by Jimmy Buffett. Uh, it turned out so much better when we couldn't get permission to use Margaritaville because Romeo's tune is so much more fresh and the lyrics work so well in contrast to this beating. The great beating in film is a topic that's uh, very close to our hearts. There's, there's a couple of really legendary ones. When Sonny Corleone beats up Carlo, gives him a horrible beating in the street, and The Godfather. In Goodfellas, when they take care of Billy Bats. In a casino, when Pesci kills the guy with the pen. We really just thought that those were top-notch beatings, but for us, we wanted to do something even more over the top, so we decided to make this beating twice as long as the one in Goodfellas. We sort of turned it up to 11. Yep. And in order to, uh, make Vin look even more formidable. We did some of the shots from a low angle that seems to have the effect of just making a guy unbelievably imposing. And for the rest of the stuff, in order to get across the visceral nature of it, we shot a lot of it handheld. So they're bits and pieces, characters, fists flying back just in and out of frame. And uh, it seemed to create a really kinetic effect. I think we shot this, the most of the beating around between four and seven in the morning. Whoever took it has got to be making it obvious, so I want you to find out who. When you do, you come meet me at the motel. These are guys trying to, especially Barry's character, assert themselves in a world where he's had limited experience. And uh, we think Vin really played this scene nicely, because unlike some action movies or glib action sequences where a guy's so proud of himself for doing something violent, even in a subtle way, it seems like Vin really pays the price for what he had to do. Chalk it out? This is Rob Holden, who was our locations manager in Calgary, where we shot all this, the outdoors stuff. A great guy and a natural actor. One of the best.
You can see Bruno San Martino right behind Hopper again. Yeah. Hey, Teddy, it's me. It's you. It's Maddie. Where the fuck have you been, kid? I'm with Marbles, you know. I'm trying to take care of this thing. But I figure it's pretty much under control now. Don't piss down my back and tell me it's raining. You tell me what's really going on here. Hey, Pop, listen. I just, you know, I've had a, a few complications, that's all. Yeah, like what? Well, the moment exactly? that all sons really don't look forward to, calling their father to tell them that they've really fucked up. Not to fucking go anywhere. You got the bag with you at least, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to get it right now. You don't have the fucking bag? Pop, listen, is he This reminds me of when my dad would see my report card. And you, you convinced me to give it to him. Pop, would you listen to me? I should have known fucking better. Shit. Maddie, that bag is not full of nickels. It's got about a half a million dollars in it. And now your father owes the guys above and Georgie fucking Yorkers. If we don't get that bag back in the next 48 hours, it's the three R's for us. The roof, the river, or the revolver. Get that fucking money. This line, the roof, the river, and the revolver. Credit goes to Barry Gold. Uh, the three R's. One of the great Long Island philosophers. And one of the worst fates that can befall you. Here's a great New York character actor, Arthur Nascarella. He was a longtime cop and uh, became a great actor when he was done with the force, been in a lot of Spike Lee movies. And that's not the half of it. He's a hell of a man. Not even the quarter of it. Now you'll notice there was highlight. Uh, that's what uh, Arthur's character, Billy Clueless, is watching on the TV. Our idea was that they had a, a closed circuit feed from Florida. Because they had the highlight matches fixed. And we want to send one out to uh, one of the greatest East Coast highlight players, Eggie Eggstrom. Clue. Anybody been in here spending a usual amount of cash? Yeah, these two little skateboard punks. Now, we shot this before the beating, and later, Kevin Gage came up to us and said, I wish we would have had the beating before this. I'd have asked him for an aspirin. He didn't realize how bad the beating was going to be. N now, we're not the only ones who, on the set, occasionally wanted to kill Dove. Um, Kevin had really badly hurt his back right before shooting this. But Dove just really got under everybody's skin, intentionally trying to bring the most of the other actor. And I think Kevin's happy to push him against the car here. Kind of like that scourge on your face. That was very natural for Kevin right there. Also natural for Dove with whatever he's smoking, I think. Look at these fuckers. <laughs> Covered in camouflage, sitting out in the woods. This is an important sequence, little motif in the movie. Jimmy Houston's work as an outdoorsman. We uh, we watched his shows when we were out west researching. The man's quite a hunter and fisherman. And this specific footage, David saw this by himself and uh, really... Uh, hunted down this footage because we needed to see Jimmy. Much like Jimmy Houston tracking quarry, I hunted down this footage. Remember I was gonna get woken up at like 4.15 in the morning. A knock came, all right. 
Whole fucking door came off its hinges. OC task force, feds, NYPD. Yeah. Wouldn't take any chances with Benny Chains. There's a moment of sort of pause and reflection in the movie where these, where this character starts to realize where his life has led him. The actors did a great job. They, they really uh, managed to communicate sort of long-held childhood memories and a long, long-term friendship. And he's right, too, because if his dad didn't go that night, he never would have ended up with Teddy in that basement, and his life would have gone in a different yeah, direction. Yeah, face and the whole deal. A different way for me, what can I tell you? And Kevin Gage just drove up. Kevin Gage's character's name is Brucker. He just drove up in the, uh, the Scout with no top. A great Western car. Found out what you told me, too. The, the main person who scored the movie was Clint Manziel. We'd seen uh, Darren Aronofsky's first movie, Pie, and uh, we thought it was a great movie, but the, uh, the soundtrack in particular we thought was incredible. Clint Manziel uh, had done that, and we were lucky enough to work with him on this. Now, I think that that's supposed to be marijuana in that thing. There. Hey, dude. You think if we give him back the money, you think they'll let us go? All the sets of guys in this movie had have plans of their own. Everybody, everybody's working on their own little set of dreams, whether it's a street luge or being made. Dog shit, you go looking for who it belongs to, right? People often ask us, um, because we've been best friends since we were kids. Um, if Maddie and Taylor are, are like, uh, like where we see ourselves in these characters. And people asked us that about Rounders also, whether, you know, who was, who was uh, Mike and who was Worm. And I think we've had it, got it narrowed down that we're either these two guys or the sheriff and the deputy. Could we not take the luges with? No, man, they're too bulky. We gotta sacrifice them. What about my stuff? Dude, we'll get you new stuff. Go time. There's a lot of uh, sons disappointing fathers in this movie, and fathers disappointing sons. Oh shit! What the fuck is that? But the fathers really built the children. You know, the fathers here made the sons, as typified by his reaction. You know, slapping his kid instead of giving him a big wet hug. Where that reefer I saw you smoking? Give me that. No. Fuck. Where'd you get this? Originally, we uh, toyed with the idea of having the kids find at least half the money at the end of the movie and then get on a bus with their luges and go away. Um, but we thought it was too comic an ending for the film. We had a really um, difficult time or we were very concerned with balancing the tone of the film because um, 
although it's a serious film, it's a drama, there are a lot of comic elements. And our instinct at times was to go too funny almost, and we had to rein that instinct back in. The Coen Brothers films, in general, are exert an enormous influence on our work. Yeah, and the sheriff and deputy, in a way, are real, really influenced by them, just these guys with this quirky little world and language. There may be no better buddy movie than The Big Lebowski, and maybe Stan uh, and Donnie are our um, nod to those two guys. You should always have two guys like uh, Walter and the Dude in a movie if you can. What makes a man, do you think? <laughs> this is uh, actually the deputy's garage. And there's a car here that's barely in frame, sort of, it's a classic 57 Chevy. The idea was that it was uh, the deputy's father's and the guy passed it down to him that he was spending all his money on it. And he seems to be trapped in this little space. He's trying to uh, make his last stand as an honest man. But Noonan's too intimidating. And now here's a great moment coming up. Watch this. Noonan taps his gun. Sean's eyes go to it. And you understand that he's saying, I'll kill you. In a very non-movie-ish way. And the actors came up with that stuff themselves. Now we're back with our guys at the motel. It's, it's just off the interstate. There's nothing in the background. This is in Delia. Yeah, it's about two hours northwest of Calgary. Northeast? North. Let's stick with north. All right, I lost the bag, but I ain't getting arrested behind it. What good is that going to do us? Arrested. I believe this guy. That'll be the good news. That bag was like life support for my father. He needed it yesterday. Uh, that, that's the weakest production design moment in the show. Uh, we didn't get real glass, and you can sort of see that the glass is fake on this set from the outside when you're looking. Welcome to Mayberry. What can I do you for, boys? Well, I'd say about a half a million, Sheriff. That's so? See, my friends and I here, we're looking to get out of your town. But before we do, there's something we just can't leave behind. Well, this ain't the lost and found. People around here are real careful with their property. Because you wouldn't want to misplace your cow or nothing. You got some set of oysters on you there, boy. Walking in here like... We love the movie Angel Heart. And there's a, there's a scene where De Niro eats this hard-boiled egg in a really disgusting and frightening way. And it inspired us to try to give... Similar prop to Tom Noonan here. And the guy had to eat at least two dozen eggs that night. Listen, Sheriff, why don't you and I just have a little word in private, all right? Come on, Tom. Oh, this is another great thing. We just missed it, but um, you're watching a DVD, so just go back a few frames. When Maddie comes into the office, he kind of crosses his arms trying to be a tough guy, 
and Noonan just imitates him, mocks him, and the character doesn't know, and uh, the actor I don't think knew, but it's a, a great sort of subtle way that Tom was trying to just get under his skin, and I think really did. I appreciate that, I do. If you've never seen uh, the movie What Happened Was, which is written and directed by Tom Noonan, uh, go out and see it. Why don't you just cut the bullshit, right? Do you know who I am? I'd like to call Mary down at the hotel and have her read me the registration. Now, Dave, is it a hotel or a motel? It's definitely a motel, but all the actors said hotel. Sometimes they say hotel, and then the sign is big, and it says motel. I don't normally volunteer this much, but I'm going to tell you because it's important. All right, I'm Benny Chain's son. It's not a B&B. Well, I, I don't know no Benny the Chains, but... Growing up, we always had uh, a pretty healthy fear of the law. And for us, it was uh, a real dark fantasy to see a guy go in and, and talk that way to a sheriff. Now, this was a hard scene to film. Um, all our actors were incredibly willing to try things and to experiment and to make suggestions. And um, Vinny had a concern in this scene, which was, how is anybody going to believe that he's able to stop me with just the butt of a gun? Why would I stop? And um, it was a really, when you see him, it, it was a really good point. Um, but we felt that there was no other way to do it. There were only those two guys, and he had to be stopped. So we said to Vin, can, can you find a way to sell it? And he said, I have to not see the gun first, and then I'll run in and let him surprise me with it. And uh, somehow, yeah, it worked in the end. Vinny worked really hard to sell it, and you really believe that Sean Doyle stopped him. When in real life, I'm not sure that's the way it would have come down. The guy your ass whooped in that bar is a cousin of mine. My marriage. Get him up! Get this shit, Marvel, straight to the airport. Absolutely, man. We gotta chuck this one off in the lost column and just, just move on. This scene's fun with a process trailer. There's Seth driving without looking at the road. You can do that. Also, it suddenly got dark out, but wait, it's gonna get light out again. I just know it. See? Marvel's pull over. Uh, movie watching tip. Anytime you're inside of a car, then you go outside of it for a line of dialogue. That line wasn't in the script originally. It was 80 yard to cover up for something. That old fucking motel we were swarming with law. They would have taken us into custody the minute we walked into that station. It's night in the back seat and morning in the front. Because they don't want anybody else knowing about the money. What are you talking about? They're keeping the money. You two can leave if you want to. But I ain't going anywhere. Scarpa. God damn, I heard that name. 
Yeah, well, Bill Curtis was talking about him on the history of organized crime on A&E. Are you getting A&E on a satellite? Yeah. You think that's his kid? Uh, as a director, one of your main responsibilities is to really communicate your vision, communicate who the characters are to the whole crew. And uh, I thought we did a pretty good job of it until we read closely this stuff that Tom Noonan is looking at. Um, Teddy Deserve and Benny Chains aren't, they're nicknames, they're mob nicknames, Deserve and Chains. But our production designer, Lester, I guess we didn't inform him of that. So if you read this stuff closely, this article on Benny Chains, in there it refers to Teddy Deserve and his wife, Teresa Deserve, as if it's their last name. You learn much about satellite, Donnie. How are you, Lester? Just think about it. Our friend Richard Rudkowski pitched in and shot this scene for us because um, Tom had to shoot something else. Um, we had to shoot two scenes simultaneously, and uh, Rudkowski shot this and did an incredible job. That's the thing. We can't let him leave. I'll tell you one thing. Next time I see those fucks, I'm gonna be packing. I keep a piece in my plane. Here the guys have arrived uh, to get the gun out of Marvel's plane where they find that uh, the sheriff or the deputy have gotten there before them and burned it. Um, we actually got an exact replica of Marvel's plane, one that wasn't airworthy, no engine and uh, set it up to burn with the visual effects guys who actually promised us that we would have a 90-minute controlled burn. Sorry, Fortunately, we had all of our cameras rolling because the thing went up in about 30 seconds. They couldn't shut it down, oh. and the plane disintegrated within two minutes. And we looked at the guy. I thought you said ours, and he went, sorry, men, it's wood. This. State Senate thinks they can tell me how to run my shop. George Booth, this actor, the man is a fucking genius. But that's mostly enforceable for your garden variety. Great raspy voice. If you look closely at his hat, it says he's an alcoholic. No, sir, definitely not. Listen, I appreciate you moving this along for us. The gun guy's the one guy they can bribe out there. And then he's a stand-up guy when the deputy comes in. You want to, um, when you buy a gun, make sure... You wrap it up real tight when you leave the store. I thought they might be trouble. No, no, no trouble. Question mostly, huh? mm -hmm. just question. Just want to yoggle doggo with him. Mm-hmm. You, you give me a call if you see him. Sure. Sure nobody from out of town's been in here? No. Oh, out of town. Yeah. Yeah, John Heater come up from beach. Had a party going hunting up Big Timber. No strangers? No stranger in you. <laughs> Chris Whitley wrote this song, A Moment of Calm, for us. Originally, when we wrote the film, we thought we were going to use his song, Big Sky Country. But the lyric felt too direct. When we're in Montana, which is Big Sky Country, and we, Whitley felt, and we did too, that the song was too on the nose. We modeled this shooting range in the wilderness after the shooting range at the Makoshika State Park um, in Montana. While driving from Billings to Weibo, um, 
we drove in to this sort of Badlands area, and right in the middle of it was this range with um, instructions on a sign. And we wanted to get the sign in the movie, but we just couldn't. That listed sort of when you can discharge your weapon and how, and um, some common sense rules like no kids under 12. Talking about this on a field trip. Talking about all of it. He had it right in the first place. Looking for a regular job, being a citizen. I tried it, man. It's the only thing left now. You don't want a piece of this. Manny, for 99 guys out of 100, this is lose-lose. And our friend, um, who Taylor's based on, is a smart guy and knows, in the way that Taylor does, the limitations of this kind of life, but in the same way hasn't been able to get out of it. Maybe doesn't feel like he can, um, but could certainly articulate in, in the way that Taylor does um, why it's sort of an impossible way to live now. We're pretty interested in the idea of, of uh, friendships that are willing to put this much on the line literally one guy offering to stay in a, in a life-threatening situation for his friend, the other guy not willing to go. Um, we've known each other since we were kids, since we were like 15 years old, we've been best friends. So for us, you know, writing, directing movies together, it's, uh, I don't know, our, it's an interesting theme for us to explore, even though nobody really threatens to kill you on a movie set. I don't know, just, last week, from the just last week, some studio guy said he'd give me a huge deal if I would just ditch you, and I didn't. God, that's moving. Should have taken it. So this was the first night we were shooting with Malkovich. Hey, look at you, you rolling the town with more guys than Sinatra. And you'll see uh, Malkovich's henchman to the right, an actor, Nicky Pasco. He's one of the few men who can carry off an overcoat with a chinchilla lapel. Marbles, that voice is cutting right through me. You are unlikable. If it wasn't for Maddie, I'd look to kill you right now. As it is, I'd like to kick you through the uprights like a fucking field goal. So, where are we at? John made a really conscious choice with his accent. We've had a wrinkle. Um, and it was a choice that we really agreed with. To um, not try to play it with a deep, husky, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci-ish um, timbre. He wanted to sound um, like he could be anybody who's actually in this line of work, um, who's from New York, but uh, isn't purely like a Dem D's and Do's kind of a guy. Here we are at a drive-in theater. These guys are in the snack bar for a minute. And here's like the ultimate 
ignominy coming up. First, you have to pay the check, and then you get whacked. You'd think whacking them would be enough, and then, you know, they could pay the check. We really love this location. The, uh, the drive-in theater is such a fading institution, and out in Montana near Weibo, it's one of the places where the, the last of these are open, and we were able to find one, shoot at one. We chose a karate film there, but we, we thought it was really emblematic of the way so many things are changing. They shouldn't suffer for that, you know? If we get that money back, nothing happens to Marvels, right? It used to be there was a way to do things, and things got done. No room for whining, no room for mistakes. Now everybody's feelings are involved. You know, in a, in a way, the villainous aspects of this character were inspired by Sammy Gravano, who, and Sammy, if you're listening, I'm joking, but who uh, was a guy who professed an undying loyalty to the code of being a wise guy until the very moment that that became an inconvenient posture for him. And, uh, and he turned. And Malkovich talks the talk in the same way that Gravano did, but he's just as duplicitous and traitorous. Age, you got nothing to do with it. You take Taylor, you put him in that basement, it don't matter. And here he's just continuing this, this mental trick he's basically been playing on his nephew since the kid was 12 years old, basically telling him that he doesn't have what it takes to do this stuff. And not for any good reason, to send him down the proper path in life, but in order to make sure that the guy, the guy is not a threat to him. And the sheriff will surface soon. We'll sort the thing out. Huh. You might want to notch it back there, Notch. We got work tonight. I don't know, man. I'm not feeling ready. All four guys were actually in the room here, and we reorganized this ending because these parts of the, of the film, because um, it took too long. And we figured out with our editor, David Moritz, how to make it appear it was just these two guys were in one place and the other two guys were in another. When you're button heads with a small town sheriff and he suggests that you meet at midnight or thereafter at a slaughterhouse and meatpacking plant, you gotta be aware of what you might be in for. You should say no unless you really plan on killing him. Yes. Then say yes. I think. You want to see your money again? That's where it's going to be. What makes a man? You're not talking about leaving, are you? I am. Joe Henry's uh, song, Trampoline, is playing in the background. It's a great rock and roll song. We were really happy to get in the movie. And before this, on the exterior, um, music played that was uh, written and performed by Michael McDermott, who uh, is one of our best friends, who's a great singer-songwriter, and whose name we borrowed for Matt Damon's character in Rounders. No chance, no fucking way. You're my first cousin, and I have a responsibility to you. We use music in a number of ways in the movie. Um, at times, we use the score to sort of set the mood of what's going on. Um, at other times, we use song cues to play in counterpoint to what's going on. Um, 
sometimes it's just uh, a song cue that's maybe a burst of energy. And then at other times we use the score to go beyond just setting the mood and to distinctly point out moments. So we used as much as we could. I don't think we had like a specific rule as to how it could be used as much as situationally we, we did what we could with it. We wanted to use source music whenever we could, but not use it in a way that it was sort of, um, not in a way that would call attention to, oh, these guys are using tons of source. You know, this is, uh, no, there's very little score. And, you know, Scorsese does that in Goodfellas. Um, for us, that works really well, if, but there are moments when a score is really the most powerful thing. The songs that we used, for the most part, were songs that really meant something to us in some way, um, or we felt like were particularly um, dramatic or funny Believe me. when we used them. Great to see you guys strolling in like that. I mean, I didn't expect to see you so so early. I thought we were gonna meet later. But still, you guys were like the goddamn cat. Here, Arthur Nascarella and Nikki Pasco. Um, it's interesting, you know, they step in and stop Seth from being beaten only to kill him. And it's a real wise guy code thing. You know, only they can fuck with their own. And these guys pull it off completely. And they're genuine in both moments. They don't want him to get beaten up, but they need to kill him. Who do you think sent us? This is fantastic. Fantastic? This is a uh, fantastic acting by Seth Green. Yeah, Seth does a great job. You really feel what he's going through when he's staring down the barrels of these guys' guns. And you know, better him than me. We thought it was important to give Marbles at the end, after making so many mistakes, a real shot at redemption by keeping his mouth shut and not and trying to protect his cousin. Not talking. This was a spot in, in the town of Delia in between two buildings we shot against. It. One, the one on the left is basically a Quonset hut. There was hardly any light out there. It just seemed like a really desolate place to end up. The guys had their car there with the trunk open. quiet beginning to the song. It's a song that deals with a lot of deep themes. One of the lyrics is, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. It sort of signifies a shift in the film from when anything that was just about money and about proving yourself and certain fun and games, any laughs, things like that are now in the past and it's really the serious business of life and death that these guys are facing. So, sort of nobody's voice speaks to that kind of thing better than Bob Dylan's. I remember the first time I heard that song and being um, a lifelong Dylan fan, um, I was worried and saddened for what it seemed like Dylan must be going through at that time. You ready? Let's go. 
So it's clear here that everyone's coming to what's going to be uh, a gunfight of sorts. And it really bothered us that we weren't able to come up with something more imaginative um, to end this story. We knew that all the characters had to come to this point where it's basically a collision and there had to be a lot of death and very few people could walk away from it. But as far as choreographing that and, and setting it, we, I don't know, I guess we found our limit in a way as yeah, first time directors. I was going to say exactly that, that we, we, we bumped up against our, our sort of creative limitations at that time. And, and, and still haven't really come up with a different way that the story of these people could end. Is the sheriff and deputy arriving at the slaughterhouse. This is a steady cam shot, shot between the rails of fence of some cattle pens. We like it. It's just like shoulders to knees with the, the bags of money and the guns, sort of the most important things in the movie at this point. And we, we also thought that that evoked like a really old foreboding Western type of feel. We actually shot in a real slaughterhouse up in in Toronto that had all of the visuals and the smells that you might expect from a place like that. And people were wearing masks on the crew and putting Vicks Vapor Rub under their nostrils. And it was really tough. We were going to be in there for about four or five days. People were swearing off meat. By about the third day, people were eating hamburgers on the floor between shots. And there was a subplot that we cut out during editing, which is that the sheriff had planned on taking the deputy's money, killing the deputy, and having all of it. And what you don't see is earlier in the film, the sheriff switching out his bag for a ringer bag, um, filling it with other stuff. And then it was when they all die, the original bag of money was going to be found by the kids. But when Maddie came back with only half the money, uh, although to us the point was, well, now that Teddy's not stealing anymore, Benny's going to be able to get all the money back, it was unclear. And when we'd show it to anybody, they'd say, well, wait, he only got half the money. How's he going to get out of it? And we didn't... So in the end, we had to sacrifice, but we really want... One of the things we wanted to talk about was how everybody, you know, has betrayal in their heart. I know you thought this was a manageable situation, but some situations are unmanageable. Now, is a dumb shit like you at least smart enough to bring the money? We left all kinds of uh, meat cutting and processing equipment hanging around on the set. Just really created a, a weird, uncomfortable environment. Put them down. Put the guns down! What the fuck is he doing here? <laughs> yeah, it's like this, Don. There's a lot of money in that bag. We wanted to give uh, Chris's character some redemption also, even though blasting a guy in the back is an interesting way to show it. The idea was that he couldn't leave his friends in the end. His conscience got to him, and he crept back in. Clint wrote really powerful music um, for this scene. It really adds to the tension and drama. 
it's very frustrating at times working with guns um, because they always break. Guns are designed to shoot bullets, which have a certain weight. And these, well, when you use blanks, they're called loads, half loads or quarter loads, which means that there's only a quarter of the amount of gunpowder or half the amount of gunpowder. And so they get jammed very often. And uh, if you have guys all squibbed up and two shots go off and then the gun breaks, it's hours to reset. And, and hours on a film of this scope um, really cost a lot uh, the time you can't get it back. I guess that's another reason we wish we could have been more imaginative than have everybody pointing guns at each other. Let's see what we got here. It was you. You came out here to do this. I know what I told you, kid, but nobody fucks up like your friends did here and comes out of it clean. No. Bullshit. You came out here to take that money. There were never any shortages. You're the one who's been robbed. Finally, Maddie's figured out the, the lifetime of betrayal that he's suffered because of his uncle forces Teddy to uh, come across and we didn't want to go ahead with like a straight motivation like I, you know, I wanted to be the boss. We thought something more personal would be a lot more interesting. You came here tonight to kill me. Tell me I'm wrong. Go ahead. Tell me I'm wrong about any of it. The fuck do you want to know? I did what I did. Walking off that handball court, dumping game after game to your fucking old man. Can I tell you, I could beat his ass carrying a lawn chair in my left hand. So yeah, now I'm taking mine. Now to a handball player? That's an enormous insult. Yeah, it's an old handball hustle that you uh, make a bet with somebody that you could beat him carrying a lawn chair. And the great guys can do it. You don't want to lose to a guy carrying furniture. I got shoes older than you, kid. We chose to de-emphasize the sound and the impact of um, Maddie shooting his uncle because even though it's the culmination of, of his journey, there's nothing glorious about it. Uh, it's a horrible way to win. Maddie's not sure if he's lost everything here. He's paid an enormous price. But the fact that the one guy who was really always there and always willing to die for him uh, is there and pulled through. Leaves him at least the beginnings of a way to rebuild himself. Plus, you can't go killing Vin Diesel. This is a process shot. 
this scene starts with a whip pan to the bag of money as he drops it off, which is the thing that's motivated the whole movie. And now that he's put it on his father's desk, he's sort of ready to move on. Good. So finally give me we reshot the scene once we decided that he brought all the money back. Look, I know I was... The dialogue changed a little bit. It was always about a guy finally understanding that uh, he'd done so much in his life to prove himself in his father's eyes. And that he was sort of past it now. Like when Larry Zabisco decided he didn't want to be called Little Bruno anymore. That's a wrestling reference. I've been trying to live up to what I thought you wanted me to be. I fucked up my whole life for it. For you, Maddie. I thought it was what you wanted. I never wanted you in this thing. Papa really gave us some great stuff. He manages to play quiet regret incredibly well. I'm trying to understand this kid. If I hadn't done this, I'm out. I'm out. I'll see you, Pop. So we're back in Brooklyn to shoot this, the final scene here. And uh, we were lucky enough to have a really beautiful sunny day. It was a great counterpoint to a big chunk of the movie that had happened at night before. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Is there any symbolism in that? Deep amounts. Done with this too. Now here's Barry giving back the Cadillac. And that swish pan is actually two different shots. I guess if you freeze it somewhere there, there's no keys, just the camera moving. And the, the keys are just sitting there and we just flip to it. Vin was, um, he had done some training already to drive for Fast and the Furious by the time we shot this. And he was very excited to show us the way that he could get the car moving. And he's driving with one hand because the other arm's shot. And the thing was, he timed this right here so that he'd make the light, which just uh, happened. And this song, um, Make a Deal with the City by East River Pipe, is one of the, the all-time definitive songs about what it means to live in a city and to live in New York City. And how if you live in the city, you have to make a deal with the city. And you have to decide to, um, to exist as yourself, but also exist as one of the hundreds of thousands of people. Millions? Millions. <laughs> what is a man? Is it doing the right thing? no matter what the cost. That and a pair of testicles. You laugh, but maybe you're right.